Hello, everybody. Today we have a, our first micro workshop with content expert on missing and murdered Indigenous women and people and task forces. Our sponsor for today is Na'a Ilahi Fund. This topic can be sensitive and triggering, so please take care while you listen. Again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all Native run podcast discussing data events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation and Yakima Seated Area. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We are talking today during the noon hour. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts are Patricia Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowick. Our guest today is Chris Cuestas with the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. And I'll turn it over to Chris to introduce himself. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Christopher Cuestas, and I am a consultant with the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. I am a former uh, major case investigator with the Tucson Police Department, where I spent 25 years. Uh, I also began consulting in 1996 for a number of OJJDP and Department of Justice initiatives, and also Violence Against Women and Children initiatives. I've had the opportunity to work in tribal lands since 96 uh, and came up with a strategic plan with regards to developing community-based task forces in tribal lands. The name of the task force was GRIPS, which is Gang Reduction Through Intervention Prevention and Suppression, and submitted that for review for through IHS and the Department of Justice and received the best practice in 2000. Since uh, 2000, we've had the opportunity to implement our task force plan in 28 tribal settings throughout the United States. And I have facilitated every one of those and have learned the ins and outs of working at the introduction of community-based initiatives in tribal settings. One of the reasons why I decided to participate in this podcast with regards to developing uh, these types of processes in tribal lands. Uh, our intent today is to have the first micro workshop with the content expert on missing and murdered indigenous women and people, as well as a content expert on task force. This is a collaboration with the War Cry podcast and our sponsor for today is Na Ilahi Fund. Uh, this topic can be sensitive and triggering and we do note that ahead of time. And we wanna thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you all attending today's session. As was indicated by our, our host and our narrator, Emily, what we're going to do is we are going to look at the concept of task force development, and we are going to method methodically go through the process of developing task forces in tribal lands. Uh, I think it's essential that everyone do take the time to ask specific questions that they may think is relevant to developing the task force for their own community, and also either of the nuances with regards to the material that I'm going to be covering. So today is going to be our kind of our, our foundational setting uh, for the our first session, but we're going to get into more elaborate uh, details as we go on in our other 
three sessions. And uh, at the end of our session today, I'll, we'll kind of we'll cover what the other workshops are about. So without any further delay, I'll just uh, share screen and we'll get started. I'm going to quickly go over my background and also why a micro method uh, workshop and how I believe it is uh, impactful and will be successful for anyone that is looking to develop and implement a community-based initiative in the form of task force. Okay, I've been consulting in tribal land since 96. Uh, I indicated earlier that I had I was awarded a best practice in 2000 for developing a, uh, a strategic response to gangs, drugs, and youth violence in tribal lands. At that particular time, the strategy was called GRIPS. We have had the opportunity to be able to expand that in the form of investigative task forces as well with the uh, growing interest of MMIW, MIP in tribal lands, we've expanded the strategy to include missing and murdered indigenous women and missing indigenous people. We received a governor's policy uh, award for the state of Wisconsin for updating and writing tribal code and, and developing community-based ordinances, which we're, we're gonna cover why you, you have to do that if you're going to develop a, a task force. We were also recognized by the International Association of Chiefs of Police for innovative strategy development in tribal lands. And we've developed this strategy and facilitated community-based task force for 28 tribes. So it says 21, but we are still provide consulting for 28 more. We do community assessments. I've got a couple scheduled in the next couple of weeks. We develop strategic planning for uh, communities based upon what we, their uh, the needs assessment is. We also facilitate uh, task force concepts and directly uh, run task forces for tribes, depending upon what stage, level, and degree of sophistication they are. Uh, we do staff training and professional development sessions, and you'll see why that's real important when you do run a task force. And we also implement community-based programs to be responsive to the strategic plan that the tribe or the commun tribal community has has developed. And we also do some grant support, although not as that much as not as much as we used to. I used to be a peer reviewer for Justice Department, going all the way back to 1996. So. I've cut back a lot on, on that grant support work. Strategic plans, we develop them in phases and we walk the, the tribe through that process and protocol of strategic responses. We do task force development from the point of resolution all the way to the point of running their protocols and procedures for them. We always employ community-based or community-oriented policing strategy, which seems to be the trend or the transition now with uh, law enforcement throughout our country. And we use SEPTED. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with SEPTED, SEPTED is crime prevention through environmental design. It's a concept where you develop, lay out, and construct your community using uh, crime prevention practices as opposed to being reactive and only dealing with the symptoms of criminal behavior or drug behavior, or in this case, trafficking behavior within those settings. So you look at all the the initial prevention strategies to our, that can be implemented within that community setting before uh, you have families begin to develop and uh, 
begin to move into different settings. We use multi-level prevention intervention services. One of the things that I say when I develop task force and help tribes work on task forces is that you have to get used to doing more than one thing. And in some cases, you have to do three things at once. It depends upon what type of trend you're trying to offset and what you're working on. And one of the things that I've, I've started because of tenure, I've started moving my materials more into training of trainers for communities to be more empowered and be at a point where they can begin to operate themselves. I'm, I'm a certified instructor. I'm certified for POST, which is Police Officer Standards and Training. Uh, NEA for National Education Association uh, and a APA American Psychology Association. So I've I've got all the credentials to provide these types of training. So why did we decide that micro method workshops were essential? Well, I believe that one of the things we have to do is begin to look at targeted responses for subject matter that we are seeing evolve and mature within our tribal settings. And there's oftentimes what we do is we get to a point where we're constantly chasing the symptoms and not getting involved with the underlying or the root causes. But when you in community development and on crime prevention, you have to look at what root causes are and what you can implement in your community and offset the, the, the development of those root causes, causes to make sure you don't have replication of those types of behaviors. Because what we've seen, we've seen this in, in, in the drug environment and also in the in the gang subculture is that if a problem stays within a community setting, you end up seeing uh, cyclical activities develop. So now you start seeing first generation behavior, second generation behavior, and third generation behavior. And the reason is, is because once a community gets saturated, those characteristics and those subcultures begin to influence the community generationally. And unless you develop a, a plan or response that deals with your young generation to offset those trends and to make those changes and to stop the evolution of those subculture. And micro learning concept was created to assist individuals and communities that are looking to prob problem solve and introduce solutions that are called trend stoppers. For example, you may not be aware of this, and I'm just on the cutting edge or the cusp of this information, there's a new, there's a brand new opioid that's come out. It's called ISO. And ISO is now being laced in the majority of marijuana. And they've had the first ISO laced marijuana uh, sold out of a marijuana shop in the East Coast. And it's creating uh, a, a lot of hysteria right now because they're trying to figure out how ISO came into the country, how it's been introduced into the, the marijuana industry and how to best uh, limit those overdoses. Well, a micro workshop that basically does education on ISO to the community and also to the users of, that are using marijuana, even legalized marijuana, they need to be aware of what the challenges are and what the issues are with regards to ISO. It's basically accelerated learning uh, and it leads to more uh, faster uh, and a greater increase of professional development. And that's what we wanted to do. I sat down and we spoke to War Cry podcast people and also the Na'a Ili Fund and said, we want to be able to have an impact and I want to be able to use my, my background and my education specifically to assist tribes to be more active in dealing with the root causes of these problems instead of waiting for the issue or the subculture or the challenges 
to evolve and get to a point to where the community begins to feel like they're losing they're losing their struggle with these these uh, subcultures or potentially even losing uh, loved ones because the response is not fast enough. So that's why the concept of micro workshops was developed. So, uh, and I think it's real essential that we understand that as we move on in stages, and, and like I said, this is the introduction, that you get all those questions answered because I've seen communities that the delay and the evolvement because they don't understand how this is supposed to work or how we're supposed to get this, the right people in these task forces and how we're going to get recognized by the tribe. I want to methodically go to those issues so that we understand that. So task force, what, why do we say task force? Task force actually, the concept was created by the United States Navy back in the 20s. But the idea of task force in the community-based introduction, it's a group that's developed under direction or leadership for the purposes of accomplishing definite objectives. That's what a task force is. It doesn't have to be law enforcement. It can be. And I, 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 I strongly stress that if you begin community-based as a task force, then you can bring people on as your task force develops. Because one of the things that I've, I've learned through uh, implementing task forces in tribal lands, if you're successful, you'll develop a following. And that's what I want to talk about. How do we ensure that these task forces are successful and not just part of some other initiative where we want a tangle, but is within a tribal setting that you're a, you're a lead entity and that you have your object, you're pursuing tribal objectives, not objectives that somebody is dictating to you, but what internally you want to accomplish within your tribal setting. So that's what a task force is. So why do we need community-based task forces? That's what we're going to cover. Why is that essential? The next thing we're going to cover is do community-based task forces work? Does a community collaborative work? One of the other issues is that, well, how do we know if we're being successful? Well, the way you're going to learn is to, you got to compile data and you have to compile your data, uh, not the state's data and that the federal government's data, but your tribal data. And we'll talk about how to do that. Advantages of the task force approach. And I believe there's it's it's more than important that we understand that you can be successful. Uh, and what makes the task force work? And do you have options as a task force? You absolutely have options. You have different paths that you can take as you develop your task force. And what do we see in the horizon when it comes to uh, developing? Is there something there for us? Is if we get involved in this path, because I know there's a lot of work associated with the task force, but if that is the position and the direction that we take, what do we see on the horizon that'll be beneficial to my community in the form of uh, resources, services, funding, opportunities to be able to take advantage of this uh, approach? And uh, I think you'll see that this is the direction that's being taken with a lot of funding opportunities. And then mission statement and SOPs or standing operating procedures. We might not get to all of this, but uh, we're going to do the best that we can within the time frame that we have. So let's begin with uh, why do we need a community-based task force? Well, I'm, one of the things that I believe we need one for is because accountability. Look where we're at, ladies and gentlemen. MMIW, MIP crisis has shown that we need to get involved. We can no longer rely on outside entities 
to be upfront, honest, successful, and even responsive to our challenge of missing and murdered Indigenous women and missing Indigenous persons. I, I think we've all learned a very hard lesson with thinking that those individuals and those entities that are uh, responsible to our communities that we rely on, either through by law or by treaty, uh, they're not holding up their end. So we need, tribes need to become more aggressive in the form of accountability to find that why. Empowerment. The community needs and challenges must be brought to the surface. We can no longer just sit back and think that the problems will subside on their own because they won't. We made this mistake with the drug subculture and we made this mistake with the gang subculture. And I believe empowerment is essential if we want to be successful in recovering and uh, empowering our next, our secondary and tertiary generation of youth and community members. Responsiveness. Ensure that our programs are functioning efficiently and that they are, they are developed for the purposes of meeting our needs. And if not, ask the questions why. There's a lot of entities that have programs just to have programs. I was working with a small tribe in the upper Midwest, and it's, it was less than, I'd say, 2,500 people in the tribal community. But they had over 186 programs. And no one knew what they did, who they were. Uh, there was no name to the face. All they knew that there was a door in the tribal offices with a placard on the door saying what the program was. The door was never open. It was, you shouldn't get access to it, but the, it existed. So I think we need to reach out and find out who our programs are and why, why and if are they functioning and can we make them more efficient. Community-based initiatives. An outside entity cannot change the internal dynamics of a community. It's just uh, we're seeing that that's not going to happen. Uh, a policy change from the state or from the federal government is not going to change the dynamics of a community setting unless we have uh, an internal entity that can implement the changes that need to be changes on to benefit the tribe. And then effectiveness. Uh, I think we've learned through what's happened the past two years with the pandemic is that we can no longer depend on incompetent resources. We can't. We have to become more responsive and we have to be more demanding of, you know, those elements that we need to remain healthy and safe and secure within the tribal settings. And we're seeing that that's happening in the non-tribal communities where there's more, they're, they're demanding law enforcement to be more effective. And I think it's time that tribal communities do the same thing. And the next thing is, is that partnerships are impactful. They do work. The task force can seamlessly work with a, an oversight or a board and subsequently uh, engage with the community to be able to assist them with development and responsiveness, and also some strategies that can offset evolving and maturing subcultures. We need to do something, and I think that's the key. We need to start looking at 
the opportunity or the outlet of a community-based initiative in the form of the task force. Do we work? Does it, do they work? I want you to see a very quick video. And this is a, a task force that I helped facilitate a, a couple of years ago that's actually still functioning. And I want you to kind of listen to uh, what they're saying. And I'll, uh, I'll take a look at the uh, chat real quick to see if there's some issues. And because we are grant funded through DOJ, all our services are free. Um, if travel was available, we would be, like I said, knocking on your door. We would ask you, you know, are you, do you have time to listen to us? Do you have time to hear a little bit about our resources and the connections that we're making? Um, and we don't charge you anything. We pay for uh, our travel. We pay for our own meals. We pay for our own lodging. All that we asked at that time when we were traveling was that you provide us space to, to bring this knowledge to the community. I mean, it's not just for law enforcement or fire or emergency management. Those are key stakeholders, but we want to talk to the community members as well, the grandparents, the children, you know, tribal council. We want everybody to be on the same page because what we really feel works is a community response. You know, we, we need community members or we're asking community members to um, work with the law enforcement. Uh, we want, uh, I believe it's Jeannie had a question early on or the issue was not a lot of us know the criteria for the states. And this is what we want to encourage. This is what we want to educate the, the tribal community on. What are the criteria for their, for your state for an Amber Alert? But not so much the Amber Alert specifically and only, but all the alerts available to your, to your community. Um, we want everybody to know that. So uh, just by way of that particular slide, the state of Washington has developed a missing uh, indigenous people's alert system. Uh, and it was signed into law in uh, Washington state and it's scheduled for a launch date in uh, June 22nd, which is similar to the Amber Alert that that task force uh, individual was talking about. So, and there's a lot of tribes that have been key uh, participants in getting that those policies and those laws signed into legislation because it's essential that if there's an existing protocol and process in place, there should be no no reason why uh, indigenous communities should have the same access to use those types of protocols and systems and processes. So this, that's a uh, uh, state of Washington has done remarkable work in getting that accomplished, but. That doesn't mean there's more work to be done, which there is. And, and that, by the way, we're going to talk about what kind of task force that is, because you do have an option as to what type of task force you could become. Okay, do community-based task forces work? That is the million-dollar question, I guess. Well, research has shown that communities that use task forces and that type of process respond faster to community issues. They use leverage partnership to effectively coordinate efforts. Uh, they can see up to a 40% reduction in criminal activity. Uh, they encourage other crime prevention initiatives because you already have a vehicle in place for the development and uh, prevention and intervention efforts. And you have a better relationship with law enforcement. Some would even say there's a, there's a concept with Neighborhood Watch that if you have a neighbor, an active Neighborhood Watch, you can see your response time 
cut down by 50 year, year, a greater response time to communities 50% faster. So the task force strategy does work. And we had some questions about this. So I wanted to show you some of the uh, evidence of the task force and how we use that process to develop our success. Do community-based task forces work? Well, you also have greater awareness and empowerment education too, because that's a form of prevention intervention. When you do community-based education and when you do raise the awareness of the community, because that's one of the first things that I believe a task force is, is uh, responsible to do, is to you need to raise the awareness level of your existing community. Because I don't, I don't think I've ever done a, a presentation in tribal lands where I haven't had at least a dozen people come up to me and said, uh, I saw that behavior, I wasn't sure what it was, but your training made it clear. It clarified to me what I was seeing and then what it means. And then at what risk level are my children, my nieces, my nephews, my grandchildren. And that's what you need to do is you need to build the awareness level to put everyone on equal footing with where you are and what you're going to address as a, as a community-based task force, community-based task force. So what do you have to do to develop it? Well, you have to compile your own data. No one is going to do, no one is going to prove your success for you other than yourself. The state's not going to compile data that's going to support you. And the federal government's not going to compile data to say that your task force is working uh, because they have their own uh, responses that they have to worry about. So a task force, the first thing they need to do is target what data they're going to recover to be able to show that they're having an impact or they're being successful. Now, what kind of data do we want? Do we want anecdotal or quantitative? Anecdotal is nice. I mean, I don't mind anecdotal. I always have parents and grandparents coming up to me and saying, you know, once you started training us on uh, phone apps and how traffickers and predators are using phone applications, I went through my son or daughter's or my granddaughter's cell phone and I started deleting some of those apps that you said that were linked to trafficking or to uh, drug activity or some of the other risk factors that are prevalent within that community setting. That's great. And I appreciate that. I really do. The only problem is I can't use it. That's not going to help me to be able to prove to my host that our task force is being successful. Quantitative data is what keeps the lights on, meaning that keeps you operational. And it, it's usable data that shows that you're having an impact and effect, you're being effective within the community that you're working in. Quantitative data is required for continuity and funding. Any grant writer will tell you, they'll use some of your anecdotal, they'll put the story in there about the grandmother, uh, but I can tell you your grant reviewer is not gonna place any value on anecdotal uh, data. They're gonna wanna know numbers. They wanna, they're gonna wanna quantitative input, but that's what keeps your lights on. Quantitative data is what's required for continuity and funding. Numbers. So I want to talk to you about numbers. So a task force is responsible for collecting its own data. What you collect to show your host, because you're going to have a host, it might be your tribe, it might be your funding entity. You have to show your host what you collect for the purposes of deter determining your task force mission or your task force objectives. So 
You have to collect that your own data. If you choose as a task force to conduct community prevention and empowerment sessions, your success can be measured by pre and post surveys. Every time we do a training, we pre and post test our participants. And what we want to do is we're trying to measure knowledge gain. We have a uh, we have a first offender program, and our first offender program is we do it's an alternative disposition where kids that are referred to tribal courts. Uh, this is an option to for them to attend a first offender program, but they have to part of the response is they have to attend the first offender program with their parent because under juvenile system, the parent is accountable and responsible for the behavior of their children. So we have the court mandate a parent and youth participation. So what we'll do before we ever start the program is we pre-test them. We press pre-test the youth that are referred to us and we pretest the parents that are referred to us. And what we try to do, uh, we write those tests to be able to gauge what they've learned, knowledge gain. So what we what the response is, we compile that data together. And if they came in saying that they only knew 30% of the information that we presented to them in our session, and they walked away with an a 97% increase or 97% knowledge of the material that we shared, we are able to show that we increased knowledge gain by participating in this training. And then you can use that percentage to show that your task force is delivering and being responsive to that community setting. I hope that's not too confusing. So pre and post-test is really good. It does have, a, a, it's a way to measure knowledge gain. Here's another, measurement model example. Our task force grades out at 97% of knowledge gained for adults and our, that attend our session. And we also have an 82% in, increase in knowledge gained by youth, whether it's a, uh, a drug prevention training, a gang prevention training, a trafficking prevention training, a technology training, our first offender strategy. We, we use that to be able to determine what, what has been developed. The other thing you can use is you can use your sign-in sheets. Your sign-in sheets are gonna tell you how many people you had in that, that participated in that, in that session. So of those individuals that attended that session, this is the percentage of knowledge gained from them participating in that subject matter uh, workshop. So you, that's information that'll show that you're being successful as a task force. So measuring their knowledge gain, sign-in sheets. Uh, one of the other things is we're usually called to call to uh, develop a strategic plan to address community issues. So based upon that plan uh, dictated to us by the, the community itself, we will then target specific community-based data that shows that we're having an impact. The majority of community risk factors are evolving challenges. So you must begin to address those root causes, which I spoke very briefly on. We will measure delinquency. If, if example is, if we are tasked to address drug reduction or gang prevention, what we will do is we will measure delinquency petitions for those two subject matters that we are responsible to address. We will also look at truancy, uh, drug referrals into programs, or gang-related referrals or gang arrests. 
from both the community, the tribal community they're working with, or the area schools that serve those tribal youth. So we we want to compile baseline data. That's what's that's what we're going to get. We're going to get baseline data by determining what they're receiving. Say, for example, that the tribe is having 30 petitions for gang activity or, or drug activity or truancy, 30 a year. So what we do is then based upon those challenges, we will implement strategies to offset those continued behaviors. Uh, we will then measure the data of those risk factors prior to the task force implementation and then track that behavior as the task force responds to those challenges. And what we've seen is that we have a we end up with a range of 40 overall 47% of reduction of those that information that we're tracking and as high as 86% reduction in that information and material that we're tracking. So we see we start seeing a reduction in truancy, we see a reduction in, in drug referrals, we see a reduction in drug arrest. We see a, re, a reduction in school suspensions, everything that's specific to what we are working on. Now, there are some things that you have to do before that. And it's re, it's re, important to note that when you, rev, you review existing tribal law and order code prior to tracking your community as risk factors. Now, the reason that you want to do that is because they, you may have to codify some of that at-risk at behavior and update the law and order code. Uh, and I've had this discussion with a, uh, a juvenile probation director who some of you may know, he did not want to codify any behavior because they thought we were just going to add punishments, but that's not what codifying at-risk behavior does. Uh, and what codifying basically is you're writing law and order code. And if you write your code correctly, you will write in intervention, prevention, and empowerment. So that can become a mandated option for the parent and the offender that they have to participate in, in that alternative disposition. And then you can begin to track their behavior uh, and the changes in their, their activity and behavior. You can even track recidivism. Uh, so you're, you're not codifying to punish. Uh, and that was the misconception that uh, this juvenile probation director had was, well, you're just going to write more code so you can punish our kids. No, because in the code, we're going to write intervention, prevention, and empowerment for the parents and the youth that are being brought in for that juvenile petition. It's just understanding the big picture, the bigger picture of why it's not only a benefit to the task force, but it's also a benefit to the tribal community and even a benefit to the individual because with wraparound services, you can continue to provide support and assistance to that individual that has been referred to the juvenile system. So, and then you are able to use that information specifically to show the impact of your task force. Advantages of a task force approach. You learn who your service providers are, those common faces, and you, you increase their accountability for your responsible, for, the, for their responsibility. So, uh, what making them a member of their task force of your task force, you have introductions and you have their your members of your task force, your key stakeholders. Uh, you get them to explain who they are, what they do, what their response is, who their clientele is and what type of services do they have available? 
And what you usually get from your your body or your audience is, well, I didn't know you guys did that. I didn't know that was available. I didn't know that, you know, you were the one that was supposed to be doing that. But th this is all part of the collective. You bring the collective together. One of the things we're going to talk about next session is how do you bring those key stakeholders to the table? There's a real uh, technique to bring those stakeholders in. Because in some cases, in some instances, they're comfortable sitting in their offices and not being accountable. <laughs> but when you bring them into a task force setting and to explain and you get to ascertain what their role and responsibility is. One of the biggest challenges for tribal for tribal families is learning how the system is supposed to function and who do they turn to during the crisis. I think that's one of the big things that we're gonna accomplish with our micro method task force here, uh, our micro method uh, workshops, is how does a system supposed to work? Where can I ask questions? Who can I help help be to be accountable? And how do I get a response from the attorney, the U.S. Attorney's Office? How do I get a response from the case investigator? How do I file a FOIA uh, to get information? How do I get an update on my loved one's case or my family member's case? Uh, but I think that's one of the big things that we're going to be able to uh, work out with uh, participants is that learning how the system is supposed to function. You leverage resources. A task force is supposed to be a toolbox for the community. That's buzzword. That's the key line. A task force is a toolbox for the community to use. If it's not a toolbox, if it's just a group of individuals that are having meetings just to have meetings, it's not a task force. Or if it's just a group of individuals that meet so that the state can dictate to them what they want them to do, it's not a task force. A task force is supposed to be a toolbox for the community. You create a working group with the same knowledge base and become uh, immediate support and assistance for victims and first responders. One of the things that's very frustrating, though, and uh, is training and retraining. I, I really stress that when you meet with your task force, that everybody has the same level of training so that everyone has the same grassroots knowledge of what your roles are and what you're going to accomplish. And you establish a community buy-in or support for prevention and intervention because that's the key. In my, my opinion, that's one of our biggest downfalls is that we don't do enough prevention and intervention. We rely on the traditional system of arrest and hoping that there's going to be a change because of the consequences that the system brings in introduction introduces to the offender, which it, that, it doesn't work. And I can tell you from my perspective and my experience of the hundreds of cases that I've worked, the criminal justice system does not is not punitive. They're just warehouses. And in some instances, they make the situation worse because the, the offender gets angry and then wants to retaliate not only against the victims, but to the system as well. So what makes a task force work? Very simple. You have to have clear and precise lines of roles, delineated roles, what members' roles are, clear lines of delineation. To oftentimes, the hierarchy has not established by the task force. Uh, you have to have a high-quality trainer and a high-quality facilitator. If we go all the way back to the definition at the beginning of what is a task force, remember it said under direction 
so you have to have someone that's been there and done that. Not someone that says there's been there, done that, but actually someone that is actually has the experience and expertise to facilitate that body to move forward. Clear operating procedures and protocols. That will be workshop two. We're going to go over SOPs and objectives, developing your objectives and open and clear participation. One of the issues is when you have a task force, remember you're opening yourself up to the community. Uh, and when you open yourself up to your community, you're going to have some people that have scores to settle. You're going to have some people that have tried some of these methods and have been rejected for one reason or another. And you may even have some people that are just bitter, but they have the same level and right and opportunity to clear the air than, than anyone else. So you have to allow that to be part of your, uh, your task force response. You have to give them an open and clear opportunity to participate. Even if it's, if you have to get to a point to where you have some negativity that's in the community setting that attends the, your task force sessions, you may have to get to a point where you write in your procedures, your operating procedures that they agree to and sign off on, we'll talk about that next session, but a time limit to when they can begin to, you know, go over what their issues are. Let them talk. But if if it gets to be too outrageous uh, in your operating procedures, you show that you only have two minutes to talk just because of the size and nature of the task force and what you want to address. And the other thing is production from your stated agenda items. Nothing derails a task force more than having the same items on the agenda month after month after month. Because what happens is the message that you're sending is, is that you're not making progress. If an agenda item is not cleared within a session or two, close it. I've seen, I've been to task forces and I've seen task forces where uh, agenda items stay for a year. And there's never action taken on those agenda items. There's no need for that. It has to be very, your, your task forces have got to uniformly move through the stated agenda and get things done. And that encourages their body to see that they're being successful because we're building upon a platform where we're seeing responses, we're seeing an impact, and we're seeing that we're making a difference. And that's what a task force wants to do, is they want to see themselves be productive. So keep that in mind. So you have to have a clear agenda that's moved through quickly and showing that you're making progress. I've, I mean, I've, I've even had task forces where one of the things that we do is that we go over grant, uh, grant opportunities. And as everyone that is here today, grant opportunities, you have a very small window, usually 30 days at max 45 days to be able to pursue that grant. And we will review the grant opportunity. We'll, we'll pull up the, I'll pull up the PDF. I'll print it. I'll show it to everyone. I'll give it to them and let them look at it. And I'll say, is this something we want to go after? Uh, and if we're going to go after who's going to be our, uh, how, who's can run it through the process, who can write it, who has a contact. Uh, and if they don't, if you get no response, there's no reason to, to carry that on to the next 
uh, task force be because people aren't interested. And I'll tell you one of the keys, everybody wants a grant. Everybody wants a grant. Nobody wants to be the grant administrator. And the reason they don't want to be the grant administrator because you have to write reports and it takes a response and it takes time. So unless you get those issues ironed out right away from your task force, just go through it in the agenda and move on. Uh, don't waste your time saying, oh, we've had this uh, grant opportunity and you know we're meeting again to, is anyone interested in that? No, they don't want it. If they don't want any part of it, then you just remind them later on in the course of your year, well, we would have had funding for this, but remember, we decided not to respond to this data item regarding that grant. Move on. Task forces have options. You can either be an activity-based task force or an issue-based task force. I told you uh, when you saw the video, that is an issue-based task force. When, I, when they asked me to help them develop that task force, they said, we don't want to do any marches. We don't want to do any, any type of community-based actions. We want to work on the infrastructure and the issues that we're having between the state and our tribe. So you can do that. You can become an issue-based task force. Uh, an activity-based task force can choose to be a group that coordinates community events, youth activities, awareness sessions, Empowerment training, absolutely not a problem at all. You could become an activity-based task force, but it's going to be difficult without someone that has been able to do both to uh, uh, function that way. An issue-based task force will focus on internal administrative responses to reduce community and regional risk factors. That's what an issue-based task force does. You start looking at protocols, laws, ordinances, policies, police response, police tactics in doing investigations, case status, closed cases. You're focusing in on those issues. And remember, those are going to be time-consuming issues. So if they want you to partner in an activity, you create a subcommittee. If the task force decides, yeah, we want to we be part of that march, uh, or we want to be part of that event, or we want to do an awareness session. You just develop a subcommittee that works on those issues, and the rest of the task force continues its function on pursuing the issues. And then that activity-based subculture, uh, that subgroup, that subcommittee reports back to the body as to where you're at. Uh, you can do both, but the success of managing both responses is going to determine uh, upon the expertise of the facilitator. You create a working group with the same knowledge base that can become immediate support and assistance for first responders and for victims, especially when you come when you start addressing the issues of MMIW, because you're going to have once the word gets out, and once people start making inquiries, they're going to run into closed doors. So they're going to look for advocates. And if you have an MMIW, MIP task force, they're going to turn to you for solutions. So getting everybody educated on the subject matter and what is logical or reasonable to form a response is essential. And it establishes a community buy-in and or you support prevention intervention efforts. Uh, and then you, for, you provide a greater range of training for the community members. So it depends on which option you want to pursue. But as I indicated, you can do both, but you're going to be taking on quite a heavy load. My suggestion and my recommendation 
is to begin with an activity-based task force and then work your way into the issues. But it's going to be dependent upon what you want to accomplish. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about how are the issues-based uh, task forces more impactful, and they are. What's the future of this task force approach? Well, as my understanding and from what I'm reading and what I'm accumulating as I have worked to develop task forces of tribal land, but also have partnered with Justice Department, is that they are going to rely heavily on MMIW, uh, MIP task forces in tribal lands to be fully functional. And they're going to release funding that's either currently available or maybe forthcoming to support these community-based collaboratives. In the state of South Dakota, they, the state and the Justice Department has released several hundred million dollars for uh, tribal communities to develop their task forces. And now they're trying to figure out how best to do that. And the other issue that we're finding is that law enforcement is currently experiencing a transition where in accountability has it been increased. And I think this is the, this is the perfect time for tribal communities to latch onto that. And say we want our trans, our the transformation of our law enforcement response as well, because if it's happening in non-tribal settings, it should be happening in tribal settings. You know, we want more response. We want a, a de-escalation education for our officers. We want less force being used in interacting with individuals that have mental health challenges, mental health issues, and you know, we want more accountability for investigations. We want more oversight on what's happening with our loved ones' cases. And we want more accountability of those investigators. Uh, communities are gonna be called upon to provide with these, uh, participate in these transitions. They're gonna ask community-based initiatives, you know, you know what, can, what do you need? You can serve as, you may serve as a vehicle for the changes that are forthcoming. And it is happening already. We're seeing a, the Department of Justice is holding law enforcement agencies accountable for their, their methodology and their, historical and traditional practices. So now's the time to develop and organize as a community-based initiative to begin coming, presenting some mandates. This is what we want. This is the menu that we want. This is how we want responses to occur and so on and so forth and increase that accountability. So uh, our next session uh, is gonna be section, session two. Uh, we're going to address mission statements, uh, setting your task force goals and objectives. Uh, we are also going to cover how do you get those key stakeholders to the table and uh, how do you vet task force members uh, to make sure that you limit uh, some of the challenges that come up from your audience. And also we are going to call, cover operating procedures. So please join us for our upcoming uh, microethic workshop. I'm going to give you a really quick uh, overview. Uh, we're going to use the same platform for the upcoming session, which is scheduled for April 21st. And uh, But in the meantime, if you have any more specific direct, we're going to go over whatever questions you have. You have our email addresses. You can screenshot that. Or, or also remember that Warcry podcast staff has uh, my contact information. If you need specific uh, issues or you have specific concerns that maybe you may believe to be confidential, which I totally understand. And I could do my best to answer that. What we're going to be looking at next session is choosing your task force board. 
introductory awareness sessions when you have your first meeting, uh, legitimacy and sanctioning, which I think is very important. Uh, and that legitimacy and sanctioning, I'll give you a, a very quick hint on what that means, is that your task force does not have to be adhered to or listened to or even have a voice in the community unless you are supported by a council resolution. Under When you have a council resolution, then your legitimacy of your task force is recognized, and then you can begin to address the root causes of your challenges in your community, whether it's by code, policy, procedure, or attending your general sessions uh, so that you can begin to create some changes. But if you're not recognized by council resolution, they can ignore you. They don't even have to put you on the agenda if you're not recognized by council resolution. And as a matter of fact, it's my opinion, is if the if your tribe is not recognizing you by resolution, they're trying to keep you at an arm's length by not giving you that opportunity to be legitimate. We're going to also cover mission statements, as I indicated, uh, goals and objectives, and administrative operations. The next session is meat and potatoes. So I hope you all like meat and potatoes because our next session, that's what we're going to cover. I appreciate the, the time and the opportunity, and I'm going to turn it back over to War Cry podcast staff. Thank you so much, Christopher. That was such a great presentation. You had a lot of extremely useful introductory information. First off, thank you everybody who given their questions in the chat. Sorry, I'm always like double or triple multitasking here. So uh, I will uh, ask the first questions that we had in the chat. And this was from Joni. Can you give us examples of quantitative data or perhaps elaborate it? Yeah, quantitative data, uh, like we talked about, would be uh, juvenile petitions. Uh, if you're having, uh, and school referrals. One of the things that we do, and I, that's a good point, but I, this is not till next session. One of the things that we do as a task force is we have a task force referral. And uh, I'll give you an example of uh, Spirit Lake Tribe. We did the task force. We have a task force referral based upon what specific behaviors that we consider to be placing the youth at risk, uh, whether it's drug or gang or uh, related to uh, trafficking. Uh, we will put that in a referral and we will pass that referral out through all the tribal programs and give them training if they want to know how the referral works, which they, a lot of them do. And then we do it to the surround. We do that training on the referral to the surrounding schools. So as if a tribal youth comes into counselor or is disruptive in the classroom and they see any of the characteristics that are on the referral, they can write a referral either in, in on hard copy or digitally, uh, and they refer it to the task force. So what we do is when those referrals start coming in, we are we basically put them into categories, uh, drug referral, gang referral, trafficking, or at other at-risk behavior. And then when you first do the referral, you get smothered. I mean, the first time, the first time we did our referrals, uh, in Spirit Lake, we our first month, 
we had like 313 referrals. And this was one, two, three schools. And we had about 60 or 70 from tribal programs that were concerned about the at-risk behavior of their kids. Well, here's the thing about the referrals is the referrals that come in, the task force has to respond. We, we go through those referrals. The, the, we look at each referral, we look at what the risk factor is, and then we assign those referrals to task force members. And then you have to respond to those referrals within five days. Uh, and I did all the school follow-up ones. So if I got 80 or 90 school referrals, I'd go to every I'd go to those schools and ask to be staff the, the youth. And some of the some of the uh, some of the referrals were just kids acting out. And you know, you you go through what they knew, why they did what they did, what they, for example, they either tagged a bathroom, they put some gang graffiti in the bathroom. So you ask them, you know, what had happened. And as you're as you're talking to them, you staff them and you can determine whether or not there's real uh, a significant involvement and influence there. And then uh, you may even ask the school administration, is this just something new? Is this something that's been happening? Has this individual always been recognizing, recognized as a member of this particular group and engaged in this type of behavior? And they say, no, this is the first time we saw, we've seen it. And then once you go through that referral, then you decide, well, do I do, because technically it's a, it's a violation of the gang code. So you have an option at that particular point to refer them to an alternative disposition, which is the first offender program, or a community uh, service to where they come into the school and clean up the bathroom where they did the, the graffiti, uh, or you just meet with the family. And, and, that's, and what happens is you get that referral, you take an action, the referral is then documented as one response. So we started off with all those referrals at the, at, so we begin to accumulate that data on what referrals are coming in. And we started off like 300, like I said, over 300. The last year of our task force, we ended up with uh, six referrals for the whole school year from the same groups, schools, programs, courts. So we went from over 300 referrals all the way down to just a minor handful. And even those minor hand, because the kids you, number one, you had a presence in the community. Number two, they were, they there was gonna be a knock at their door in their home with their parents about that particular behavior. And you'd be surprised how many times kids commit delinquent acts that get no follow-up from the tribe, none. So once they started seeing that we were being responsive and talking to them, their parents or their guardians or themselves, and then if the, uh, if the behavior was egregious enough, then we put them into a program, into some type of, if it was mentor, if we thought they needed mentoring, then we'd connect them with a community mentor. If we thought that they were acting out because they were hanging out with the wrong kids, then we put them into more peer specific recreational options, as opposed to letting them hang out with the older more experienced, tougher kids. Uh, so that's how that was the quantitative data that we were developing on gangs, on drugs, and on trafficking risk factors. That's quantitative. And then schools as well. Inevitably, what happens is once you begin to respond as a task force, the school referrals start going down too. 
because they don't do as many, they don't do the suspensions, they don't do the expulsions, because now they have an outlet for the behavior, which is the task force. So there they went from uh, I think they started off with like a 38 percent expulsion rate. And when we quit in uh, when we finished the task force after three years, they went down to like two or three percent of expulsions. And those were those were behaviors that we had no control over, like throwing a uh, explosive device into the bathroom, which was just a little homemade thing. But but you saw all of the. And then you get the you get the kids begin to respond and say, "Well, we can't do our stuff anymore because the task force is going to come and talk to us or go to you get a knock at your door, and, you know they're going to get your parents and and you know it does it does it did make a difference." So that's an example of quantitative. Uh, question: Another question from a, a participant, Mariah. What questionnaires do you use? Uh, we have. Uh, We've got specific questionnaires to pull data, like ask them specifically as to if they've ever been threatened by, do they consider there's a gang problem in the community? If so, if they've ever been threatened by any gang, are they an interior, is it a tribal gang or an outside source? Do they go to other communities where there's gang activity going on? And uh, For example, in your community, I'm, I'm referring to Yakima. Uh, I would refer to your gang influence as a hybrid subculture. And the hybrid is from external sources where kids have either had to band together, protect themselves, or they've banded together to emulate those outside entities. Uh, for example, you have East Side Posse and you have West Side Crips, which in a tribal setting, there's no posses or crips, but they're banding together to either self-preservation or to be accepted by those outside influences. So, so we get data that we get surveys and referrals and questionnaires that specifically glean off what we're working on. So if they're not going, if, for example, if they're truant, uh, we ask them questions specifically as to why are they truant. Are you, are you truant because you have some challenges in the home? Are you truant because you're associating with uh, drug-influenced individuals? Or are you a truant because you're involved with gang activity in the region? They don't look at uh, education in the same light as they used to back in the, back in the day when I was a kid. Education is not, it's not important anymore. So it all depends upon what type of influence they're getting. You, you pull that in from, and honestly, it's, pretty amazing the kids are very forthcoming with that information they'll tell you what what they're we have no there's no names put on any of the information that we're using for questionnaires we want them to give us information regarding what their challenges are so that's what we use we use questionnaires Thank you, Chris. Our next question comes from Gladys, and she is wondering if it's possible for her or for anybody attending to get a copy of this presentation. I have no problems with it. That was kind of my hope and desire was that people would want to be able to use the presentation within their own communities. Absolutely. Although this was just the intro, the next three ones are going to be really good. <laughs> Yeah, we had another uh, audience question from Mariah. 
does the tribe evaluate the data or an outside source? Well, uh, you have to be very careful with data because a lot of times when you you have a host that is uh, the tribe, which is usually a tribal council or tribal chair, in your agreement, they usually put, uh, almost not usually, always put confidentiality statements in your agreement with your uh, contractor or with your the group that you're working with. And there's limitations as to what you can do with the information. I have 28 information from 28 tribes, but excuse me, under the confidentiality agreement, I can't share that with anyone other than, than the tribe. So you have to kind of, even though it would be beneficial, you have to, you have to, it's got to be dictated by tribal leadership. Uh, unless you have, unless you have someone else that you're working with and they want to use that information to pursue grant opportunities, then you can, you can uh, include that, that data in the grant if the if the grant is for the tribe but uh that's kind of what I, I i usually wait for the uh for it to be dictated from tribal leadership before i release any particular information and remember also that one of the other challenges is you are talking about juveniles yeah i never share names i never give anyone's names out but just behavior that's why i don't put any nameplates on any of the material that we use to capture data. And just to clarify for the audience, the um, the outside source in this instance would be uh, Christopher Cuestas. Uh, he he uh, will partner with tribes or organizations to do those assessments. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. Yeah. Excellent point, because I don't, you know, I don't, I try to limit, I try to limit who I work for because I want to make sure that the quality of the work product stays at a high level. And I don't want it to be just mainstream so that everybody takes it and runs with it. So I want to make sure that uh, there's a, there is a uh, kind of print quote for, for myself as well. I want the confidentiality and I will maintain your confidentiality as well. A lot of tribes don't want people to know that they have gang problems, especially when they're protecting econ or they're protecting gaming institutions. So they don't, you know, they don't want that information shared that they have some community-based risk factors where may limit the regional population to come and enjoy the tribal services. So I, I understand that. I get it. Thank you, Chris. Uh, the next question we have uh, was one first a comment and then kind of at the end uh, is the question. So uh, what you were presenting on, she said, uh, this is one of our main concerns regarding the so many unsolved cases we have in the North, no investigators and no accountability with the RCMP. And how do we get them to care? And that's from Gladys. And remember, she's from uh, Canada. Right. Well, uh, I don't think you can get them to care. But what you can do is that you can get those investigations transferred to where you could start having uh, private investigators begin to review them. Uh, I know there's a big movement in the states to develop grant opportunities for private investigation firms to start taking these cases because in the in the U.S. the tribes are fed up. Uh, the tribes are fed up, and 
they're always going to turn to the fact that they're understaffed and that their resources are stretched thin. So instead of continually having the excuse, uh, provide the option of giving us the opportunity to transfer these cases for close the case, make it a cold case. Once it's closed and it's a cold case, then I have the flexibility to turn to a private investigator to reopen and pursue that investigation. And here, one or two things are going to happen, because I used to do this all the time with my cases, uh, is one or two things are going to happen. It's going to make them look bad that the case is being worked because they didn't work it. And you're going to increase the the solvability of that case by putting a fresh and different set of eyes on the investigation. And you're going to open the possibility and potential to be able to get that case solved because there are some things that private investigators can do that criminal investigations that investigators that are funded by an organization can't and will not do. Looking at an opportunity through your legislatures to begin to get some funding opportunities to hire private investigators to take those closed cases, those closed cold cases, and have those cases reinvestigated. And we've had this conversation with podcast staff on why these cases have been closed and what's going to be uncovered. But that's, you know, that's the nature of the issue is that there are going to be some very questionable techniques that were used and maybe some erroneous outcomes on the investigations. So you need to take, you need to take it out of their hands and start looking at it through a a different investigative uh, opportunity. And even, you know, even if they won't release the case, just getting reports released so that you can have a different set of eyes look at it. And then you start getting some questions answered that way. Uh, but there are some things I, I don't know exactly in in uh, in your area, Gladys, what has to be done legally to take a case away from a uh, investigative agency. Uh, if it's an unsolved closed case, but there are some remedies in the U.S. that you can do to take a case away from a department and refer to a uh, private investigation firm. So, and it's not something uh, it's not something that you would have to foot the bill for, but getting the legislature to open up some resources to be in the higher PIs, I think, is the next step. You can't make anyone care. I wish there was a way. Uh, I work gang activity for 20 plus years, and I hate to say this, but it's a reality is that people don't mind people of color shooting each other. They just don't. And it's a sad state of our country, but it's it's a reality. Yeah, Kristen, there's a need for further discussion on that. But due to time, I just wanted to close this out with a one question I had because of the role that I have in the state. And I'm wondering about any suggestions or recommendations you have regarding national and state task force forces as opposed to you know the community-based task force, which I agree with. So thoughts on national state task forces? Well, it's I here the biggest issue in my opinion is uh, state and federal task force, they're playing catch up. The tribe is already in the state of having their loved ones victimized. 
So for them to try to catch you, I, I, in my opinion, is a non-starter. I think the tribes need to branch out and move independently of what the state and the federal government did. take if, if they provide resources and services and ideas, that's fine. But the tribe needs to move forward with their, because remember you're serving a body of tribal members that are, were victims and needed, need closure or at least status updates on their cases. Well, they're not gonna take the time out of their agendas and their initiatives to go back and tell you what this case status is. So the only way you're gonna get that is by internally working on the challenges within your within your existing structure and within your existing task force. And some of the outcomes that you uh, uh, you obtain, it may, it may even be counter to what the, task, the state task force is working on or the federal task force is working on, but they're not responding to the tribe's needs. The local task force has assumed and, and, and focused on their local tribe's needs. And that's what I think is the difference. They're behind mm -hmm. the eight ball because they're being criticized and they're being challenged on numbers, investigations, protocols, techniques, investigated techniques, uh, personnel uh, that investigated those cases. Those are all challenges that they're going to have to answer in some, well, the tribal task forces don't have time for that. Okay. Tribal task forces have got to develop protocols, procedures, and get those cases moving. I don't, I don't, I don't care what your excuses. I, you had the time of excuses is done. We need to move on these cases and get these cases reopened, reexamined, resubmitted for forensic evidence, uh, have the interviews re-interviewed. Uh, locate our, our our suspects and our witnesses and have them re-interviewed. Re and that's what you, the tribe has, that's got to be their focus, developing protocols for that, internal protocols. Because I guarantee you that if they come to your, to your setting, they're not going to adhere to your tribal protocols anyway. They're going to do what they want to do as, uh, as a state. So, you know, that's my opinion. I think it's essential that task forces branch out tribal task forces branch out of their own and you're gonna you're gonna you know what's gonna happen is you're gonna teach them some things because there's a difference there it's apples and oranges between the inner workings of a tribe and the cultural separations and the historical trauma and all of the colonization challenges that came up and the institutional racism that they're responsible for so in responding internally to your tribe, you know, you're going to bring a lot of things to light they don't have an understanding of. And I think, you know, that's, those are great accomplishments if you do that. That's my, that's my opinion. Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate it. The time for excuses is done. Uh, it's a very good uh, note to end on and conclude. And Again, this podcast episode will be available once edited and recorded, uh, uh, or it's already been recorded once edited. I just wanted to, again, thank our sponsor of this uh, micro work, micro method workshop, Na'a Ilahi Fund, and also want to thank um, my co-hosts from Warcry podcast team, and again, our presenter, 
of many slides and lack of patience for excuses from agencies, uh, Christopher Questus. Thank you. We are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. If at any point during this session you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strongheart's Native Helpline at 1-844-7-NATIVE. Again, it's 1-844-762-8483. Or chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. I'm Emily Washings, and thank you to co hosts Robin Pibashi, Lucy Smartlowett, and Patricia Whitefoot. Thank you to our guest, Chris Questus, with National Violence Prevention Resource Center. And for our credits, we want to thank um, our support for this podcast today to Na'a Ilihi Fund. This is also edited and produced by Robin Pibashi of Pibashi Studio. Music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa. Logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger at Native Anthro. And please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. It really helps us out.